This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by University of North Carolina Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Stirrings, How Activist New Yorkers Ignited a Movement for Food Justice by Lana D. Povitz. In the last three decades of the 20th century, Government cutbacks, stagnating wages, AIDS, and gentrification pushed ever more people into poverty, and hunger reached levels unseen since the Depression. In response, New Yorkers set the stage for a nationwide food justice movement. Whether organizing school lunch campaigns, establishing food co-ops, or lobbying city officials— Citizen activists made food a political issue, uniting communities across lines of difference. The charismatic, usually female leaders of these efforts were often products of earlier movements. American communism, civil rights activism, feminism, even Eastern mysticism. Situating food justice within these rich lineages— Lana D. Povitz demonstrates how grassroots activism continued to thrive, even as it was transformed, by the unrelenting erosion of the country's already fragile social safety net. The first book-length history of food activism in a major American city, Stirrings, reveals how people worked together to overturn hierarchies rooted in class and race, reorienting the history of food activism as a community-based response to austerity. Stirrings, How Activist New Yorkers Ignited a Movement for Food Justice by Lana D. Povitz. Out now from the Justice, Power, and Politics series at University of North Carolina Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting this very moment from Los Angeles, though this interview was conducted, as usual, in Providence, Rhode Island. The United Kingdom is heading toward a general election. Tory Prime Minister Boris Johnson wants that election to be about Brexit using the national question to obscure the yawning class divide and thus win over voters from labor's deindustrialized heartland. By contrast, Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party wants the campaign to be about its radical policy agenda to end austerity in favor of a green economic program that will put power in the hands of workers— resurrecting labor as the party of the many against the few, and rightfully casting Tories as the callous guardians of inherited class power. Right now, the task of the left is not just to win power, but to elaborate a concrete transformational agenda, and then to implement it once we win. Climate change means we don't have much time. The Labor Party and Bernie Sanders' campaign are at the center of a dynamic, if still small, left-wing network that is developing policies to fill out just such an agenda, the sort of ideas that neoliberalism had long declared to be impossible, but that have so quickly become so obviously necessary. In the UK, 
Commonwealth is one of the key think tanks doing this work. And today, I'm speaking to Matt Lawrence, its founder and executive director. Above all, Commonwealth has been dedicated to plans that shift wealth and ownership to workers as part of a green transformation of the economy that phases out fossil fuels. The politics are clear. We must socialize ownership if we are to build an emissions-free economy. The capitalists in control have made their death-drive commitment to profit all too clear. And one quick thing before we get this started, I've got to keep this quick because I'm on deadline finishing a Jacobin piece on Bernie's excellent just-released immigration policy that will likely be published by the time this podcast is posted, but please, if you depend on this podcast for in-depth analysis that you can't get anywhere else, support us at patreon.com slash the dig with whatever you can. I put a huge amount of time into each and every interview, and I have to also pay a bunch of people who work on the show. And I can only do all of that and still provide this podcast to all listeners everywhere for free, regardless of their ability to pay, because those listeners who can afford to support us do so at patreon.com slash the dig. Plus, we have really good free left-wing books to send you in the mail as a thank you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Matthew Lawrence, founder and director of Commonwealth, a UK-based think tank that designs ownership models for the democratic economy. He is co-author of a forthcoming book for Verso on strategies for systems change. Matt Lawrence, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. Commonwealth is, above all else, dedicated to designing new ownership models. Explain why changing who owns things is so important, both in terms of advancing human well-being in the present and also in terms of more fundamentally democratizing power relations and democratizing those power relations in such a way as to facilitate progressively deeper and more radical reforms over time? In, in other words, in short, why ownership? So I guess one place to start would be that uh, extraordinary rally in Queens on the weekend with Bernie Sanders, AOC, and you know this extraordinary Debsian invocation of solidarity, of mutuality that um, both speakers and the whole, indeed, you know, the whole audience pointed towards. And I guess the, the reason why ownership and governance and control as a sort of collective matters is if we're trying to build a new embroidery of mutuality, a sort of wider connection of commoning, of interrelationships, of democratic relationships, then that's very difficult to build and expand upon in an economy marked by these deep concentrations of power. And that power is linked to the ownership of fundamental assets. So whether that's the power of asset managers voting on our collective savings and their control of shareholding, whether it's the control of landlords and their way of extracting rent from working people, whether it's the sort of enclosure of intellectual property that is a collective inheritance and yet is sort of siloed behind the paywalls of new forms of legal property, 
Really, if we were trying to build a much denser, thicker ecology of democratic power, of democratic relationships, we need to go to that fundamental point, which is that all political economic systems are shaped by the foundational property relations that underpin them. And in our world, clearly in sort of capitalist economy, that power is private, it is hierarchical, and it bends towards extractive behaviours, not just from nature, but obviously from labour. And clearly, if we want to move beyond that, then I think clearly we need to democratise the fundamentals of ownership and governance. And I think the other thing would be, you know, it's not simply looking forwards, but looking backwards, you know, certainly from the UK's perspective, where Commonwealth is based, but we do a lot of, a lot of work with partners in the US, Clearly, the sort of two big paradigm shifts in the organisation of the UK's political economy, the post-45 moment, and then obviously sort of the Thatcherite sort of turn in the late sort of 70s, early 80s, both of these moments were underpinned by deep structural transformations in ownership. So it was sort of nationalisation and the extension of public ownership of the commanding heights of the economy that undergirded the sort of post-war consensus, the sort of Keynesian demand management of the economy and the extension of sort of working class power, although clearly, you know, there were a lot of issues and the sort of post-war model of ownership had some sort of deep flaws, which we could perhaps return to. But then also it's noticeable that, you know, a key pillar of the neoliberal counter-assault rested on privatisation, rested on this deep transformation in ownership, whether it was privatisation of land, housing, public companies, a whole variety of things were privatised. And it was this sort of institutional turn that enabled this deep shift towards the neoliberal economy we have today. And so thinking on that, it seems to sort of myself and sort of Commonwealth's argument that fundamental to the democratic economy of the future will be a bedrock of democratised ownership, governance and control of the economy. One big thing here seems to be this break with this commonplace liberal solution to inequality of after-tax redistribution, and instead to look at this more fundamental way that power is organized, which in turn seems to involve pushing beyond this idea of kind of equity, or we often hear equal opportunity, and looking instead at things like power and freedom. How does looking at ownership and trying to transform ownership, how does it break from conventional left liberal approaches? Yeah, I mean, I think that goes to the node of it, because I think it is that universalization of freedom is the expansion of capability and of power to everyone, which I think is fundamental to the sort of types of goals that the left should be pursuing. And sort of Corey Robin and others obviously write about this very well in the US context. And I guess the, the concern um, with sort of the liberal approach would be that they, they don't take seriously the unfreedoms that property relations generate under capitalism, and they are far too blasé, frankly, about the consequences of existing distributions of capital, existing institutional formations that capital then sort of coheres into in the economy. And therefore, you know, they are unable to challenge the deep hierarchies both within the firm, you know, how is power organised within the firm, and obviously it's organised hierarchically towards the interests of shareholders and their managerial agents. But then also by being slightly sort of um, you know, less concerned than they should be about underlying property relations, they then are unable to challenge the deep mechanics that drive inequality in a world, you know, a world of secular stagnation, a world of high returns to capital but concentrated capital ownership. And so they're sort of ill-equipped both in terms of the sort of the, the technical policy kit they bring to it. But I think much more importantly in some ways, they're ill-equipped to challenge the inequalities of power that flow from property and property relations under capitalism. And so I think if the left is serious about democratising not just wealth and income, but power, 
and giving everyone capability and sort of challenging the deep inequities of power that sort of lays through society, then I think we have to go to a fundamental reassertion of the social right to organise ownership rather than private dominion. It seems as though you're, I mean, you have a lot of really fascinating proposals, but I think it's fair to say that the most successful so far has been the inclusive ownership proposal, given that you wrote it pretty recently and it first became a labor policy and has now been picked up by by the Bernie Sanders campaign. And it's remarkable because it's it's a radical plan that attacks corporations at the core of their power, at the point of ownership, by shifting both equity and control to workers. Explain this proposal, what it looks like in both its labor and Bernie variants, and just to sort of like pull back the curtain of how it goes from a policy being written in a radical left-wing think tank in London to now like a rallying point for both the UK and US left. Absolutely. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, it's a hugely exciting moment um, and you know, both the ownership fund, but also a whole set of policies that Sanders and indeed the Labour Party have been putting forward about democratic ownership and control. I think it's this really vital moment. So what are the ownership funds, the inclusive ownership fund? And I think it's called the Democratic Employee Ownership Fund under Sanders, but you know, let's call it ownership funds for short. What's their core goal? Well, their core goal is to transfer economic and political rights within the company away from where it currently resides, incumbent shareholders, sort of financial institutions that intermediate that shareholder ownership, and then executive management that are very often large-scale shareholders in their own right, but also obviously sort of the agents of external shareholders, towards the workforce, workforce as a democratic collective, as a sort of commons of the workforce. And it does that by requiring large companies, but you know this mechanism could be sort of applied to sort of all companies, frankly, but it does that by requiring companies to establish an ownership fund, which would be a all-employee trust. So all employees would be able to stand for election as trustees, all employees, and indeed contractors. So, you know, you must make everyone who works for the company, not just the legal category of employee, should be able to stand, be elected um, on the trust. That, so you can't, companies can't get out of it through casualizing their labor forces as companies are known to do exactly so this issue of sort of fishing the workforce to evade sort of regulatory capture whether it's you know and that's a problem not just relating to the ownership fund proposal but also a whole variety of um issues in sort of future, the nature of work and regulation etc cetera, etc cetera. so it has to be designed carefully so that if you work for the company or indeed if the company is part of a broader corporate group it applies to that company in other words you can't a company couldn't say, oh, well, actually, no, we don't have any employees. They're all contractors to get around it. And it couldn't break up into like 20 small companies. If it was clearly one single corporate group, it would apply to that company still. And then once that fund is established, essentially the mechanism is you transfer economic and political rights to that company through requiring the issuance of sort of shares into that, into that fund, which then over time expands the income and control rights controlled by the workforce as a whole through the trust. And so in the Labour proposal, it is 1% of outstanding equity a year, up to 10% of the total over 10 years. And under the science proposal, it's 2% a year, up to 20% over 10 years. And then as that sort of fund expands, the workforce would then have a new collective vehicle to have voice and control rights on corporate strategy. So not just sort of bargaining over terms and conditions as with you know, collective bargaining, a corporate voting block that would expand over time 
And then they would also have claim on the income that currently sort of flows to shareholders, but would then be redirected towards workers as a whole, making sure that they would mechanically share in the profits that they help generate. And so it's a way of redirecting income and control rights, expanding over time using this mechanism of a share issuance. And I think the share issuance, I think there's some sort of, you know, details to be worked out. I think for me, one of the easiest ways would be rather than using sort of ordinary share class, so to speak, you would simply require companies to create a special class of share with attached sort of legislative, legislative, legislatively <laughs> defined, a bit of a tongue twister, defined income and control rights that you would then require to be issued into the fund, which then accrue these rights over time and democratically exercise them on behalf of the workforce. And you could sort of give these that special share a whole series of interesting sort of governance, income, control rights. You could democratically define these rights because ultimately, you know, the company and property are social institutions and we should define them to maximise sort of the commonwealth rather than sort of private interest. So then you could play around with what exactly those rights would be. But the core of it is exactly that, sort of requiring the sort of transfer of income and control rights related to sort of ownership towards the trust as a whole. Now, I think there's a couple of things worth flagging. Um, so Commonwealth has its own variant, which is very much sort of flown um, you know, into this broad conversation around ownership funds. I think sort of a couple of things that we'd flag, which um, people like Matt Brunick to some degree have flagged as well, is that at the moment, Labour has a, a sort of a cap of £500 um, about the amount of money you can receive from that stake if you work in one of those companies. In terms believe, of dividends. Exactly. Now, I believe Sanders... This proposal potentially doesn't, and it would just be that you would get, you know, it would be taxed as part of your income schedule. So I think that that I'm, I'm not quite sure on that. But I think the key point is that the reason you would have a cap is because actually there are sort of substantive differences, obviously, in dividends between highly profitable, say, tech firms or finance or extractive mining companies, whatever it might be, and something like retail, where there's sort of often much lower margins, much lower sort of profit rates and sort of much higher volume of employees. And so you actually get sort of quite a big difference in the payout between different sectors. So the cap's important. And so having a cap has the advantage of socializing and equalizing control and power, not only uh, within firms, but across the economy as a whole. Well, exactly. So what you then get with sort of some sort of cap mechanism, and, uh, and you can get it with Sanders' approach too, just you know, in some ways through this sort of uh, tax system layered on top, but what you get with the increased ownership fund is firm level control. Workers at sort of large companies, which you know is up to half the workforce, benefiting directly from the success that they collectively generate, having a collective claim on profits rather than just their sort of contractual individualized wage. Um, you know, so um, you know, a claim on the surplus. But then also with this cap, and again, you, you can play around with the version. So Labour would actually transfer everything above five hundred pounds to the Treasury, so the sort of you know, sort of the spend the finance department, and then you could spend that as a social dividend on you know, decarbonizing the economy, building public housing, whatever it might be. What we've suggested um, is you would transfer the sort of dividends from high profit firms into a social wealth fund. So that's a fund owned on by, owned by the people as a whole with a mandate to invest in decarbonizing the economy and scaling democratic forms of enterprise. So then you would A, diversify some of the risk. B, you would make sure that everyone had a sort of collective stake and a say in the economy. And C, you would transfer some of that private corporate wealth into publicly held wealth held by everyone in society. And therefore, you could sort of redress some of the sort of um, disequalizing effects of potentially just firm level ownership policies, 
but then you also get the firm level benefits of workers having a direct stake and a say in the company they work for. To what degree is your proposal and the one that's now been picked up by by Corbyn's Labour Party and, and the Sanders campaign, to what degree is it inspired by the social welfare fund that was pursued in Sweden by the Social Democrats in the 80s? Is something that, as Dig listeners might recall, the People's Policy Project and Matt Brunig has, has recently advocated here in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, very much so. So the um, the wage earner fund, sort of the Meidner plan, um, you know, different variants in its sort of journey from origination as an idea into sort of actual legislation and then sort of watered down and then eventually sort of defeated um, in the early 90s by sort of Sweden's rightward turn in that election. But yeah, very much inspired by that, both this sort of underlying drive to sort of socialise capital at scale as a key sort of next goal of the left beyond just social democratic sort of defensive management, but towards a sort of fundamental reorientation of the structural power of how the economy is organised and for whom. So absolutely, fundamentally, that's that was a sort of key inspiration. Um, or certainly for, like, because it was this key moment where there was, seemed like there was an opportunity and a plan to push the post-war social democratic settlement beyond where it had been. Absolutely. And I think it's, uh, so it's important to, I think sort of the core of it, um, you know, many I mean, sort of the variants floating around at the moment are sort of slightly distinct to that, but the core emphasis on a deep structural shift in ownership towards sort of social forms of ownership is fundamental. I think that it's worth pointing out that clearly sort of the Swedish um, turn, um, and it's really interesting, I mean, it's, very, it's a very good writer, Midas, so it's worth, and a lot of uh, the original plan is available in English, and you can get sort of a free PDF of the plan that he wrote. But it obviously took place in a context of Swedish political economy at the time in which you had very extensive collective bargaining. You had a sort of broadly quite a strong export sector, but you also had this sort of coordination around wages. So wages are being sort of deliberately being held back to an extent. And so these firms are racking up sort of super profits, essentially, economic super profits. And so this was a way from Meidner and the sort of trade union movement to say, okay, well, you know, rather than just sort of wage constraints so that sort of you know, profits are sort of piling up, let's use that as a way to fundamentally shift beyond just negotiating over wages and conditions towards structural control over capital. There's this, um, you know, going even further back, there's this um, quote by G.D.H. Cole, who is sort of on the letters of Guild Socialist, um, sort of did a lot of writing around Guild Socialism in the 1920s and 30s and was kind of a critic from the left of Labour's post-war nationalisation plan as too centralised and not democratic enough and not really changing sort of the underlying sort of structure of feeling within the nationalised industries, where he said, instead of just applying the brake, why don't we take the steering wheel? And so this, you know, I think the minor plan in some ways was an, an attempt to institutionalise that rather than just simply sort of bargaining from a defensive position, why don't we why don't we sort of in the Swedish context move beyond that towards democratizing ownership and control? I think a couple of things worth pointing out, you know, that that plan was very much sector based and there wasn't a sort of dividend issuance to individuals. And so what the various plans at the moment try and do is try and address some of the I guess potential weaknesses of that politically. So it was attacked by the right as a, you know, being sectoral and controlled by trade unions explicitly, and B, sort of not necessarily you know, giving an actual state to ordinary people. So the sort of variance of the ownership fund proposals at the moment are a little bit distinct to that in the terms of the dividend. And I take Matt's point that actually, in some ways, you know, a comp- you know one giant social welfare fund is perhaps 
in just purely egalitarian terms, the sort of best subversion sort of to some degree, but it doesn't have that political bite of the company you work for, you have a claim on it and a stake in it and a direct sort of share in that. It doesn't have the control element. So the sort of Meidner plan was much more sectoral focused. Um, so it didn't have individual firm level control. And, you know, it didn't have the sort of the political sort of immediacy of you're getting sort of, you know, a sort of check written each year or every six months in your, you know, $500, $1,000, whatever it might be in your pocket through worker ownership. So very much an inspiration, I think, on both sides of the sort of the pond, so to speak. But, you know, trying to learn some of those lessons and also recognize we start from a position of both in some ways greater crisis, but also weaker institutional position than you know, the height of Swedish post-war social democracy. On that point, how do you strike that balance between creating, in terms of the politics of the policy, in terms of creating a social constituency for the program, a universal social constituency, and a more firm-specific worker constituency, which, as you just mentioned, is is understandably more tangible. Like, this is wealth I'm literally creating by working at this firm, but the more universal constituency has the the political advantage of being more, well, universal, and also of getting around some of the problems of all of the social reproduction, other sorts of labor that's hidden behind the wage. Yeah, exactly. So I think um, really loads of really important interesting sort of points and questions there. I mean, I think the answer for me is there's no sort of silver bullet, no single institution that can build the type of generative sort of egalitarian society we want and that can sort of dismantle the ingrained hierarchies and inequalities in sort of patriarchal racial capitalism. So there's no, there's no silver bullet then. The ownership fund proposal is clearly not that in and of itself. What I would suggest we should work towards is the layering up of a dense ecology of institutional forms that are democratic and inclusive and generative by design. And so that would be almost a mix of, you know, you could see a future in which the company would be owned by a 20% worker fund, which has a sort of direct sort of, you know, itches the political consciousness of the association of the workforce as a whole and has a sort of tightly bound democratic association there. But then it might be sort of 40% owned by a social wealth fund, which everyone has a stake and a say in and which sort of directs its dividends or however you distribute the surplus directly to labor that is non-waged and so you can sort of begin to sort of make sure that wealth that is created in common is shared in common and not just through sort of waged relationships um, and then you know you might think well and then the final 40 percent of this company might be sort of held by dem- democratized pension funds so that sort of individuals sort of the collective savings of ordinary sort of working people they have a stake and a say in how that's directed. It's not sort of given over to these highly extractive, highly financialized asset managers who don't act in their interests. And then I think you don't, it's not just about sort of an ecology of ownership sort of forms within the company. I think it's about a dense ecology of new forms of ownership um, and new forms of governance of the commons, whether that's the, sort of the social commons and social infrastructures, whether that's, you know, sort of commoning and stewardship of nature in non-extractive more generative, um, some more caring ways. And, you know, Jed Purdy's new book writes very well on that. Through to, you know, obviously the sort of scaling up of cooperatives, place-based sort of land trusts, whatever it might be, there's a whole thicket of institutions we need to scale. And I think we should sort of, 
the FDR line about sort of, you know, restless institutionalism and imagination. I mean, I can't remember what it is and I'm sort of almost certainly butchering <laughs> it, but that idea that, you know, we don't have time for sort of, you know, the seminar room, you know, we should have still time for the seminar room, but we don't have time only for the seminar room. We need to actually sort of practice at scale and thicken out at scale as many impulses that democratize ownership and control as possible. I mean, I think to address some of the sort of ingrained inequalities um, in social reproduction partly requires of the state clearly, you know, in a very reconfigured and democratized way and as a site of political struggle, but, you know, decommodifying and extending and, you know, providing a sort of social wage in some ways through the radical extension of all the sort of brilliant things that the Green New Deal on both sides of the Atlantic have sort of put into the public sphere. So, you know, whether it's universalizing and decommodified mobility services, transport, you know, energies of housing, communal forms of care, you know, communal kitchens, whatever it might be, it's that sort of radical extension and almost shifting into sort of the public and the commons as a space for providing this, right, and sort of de-stressing the household, which as an institution is, of course, you know, replete with all these sort of inequalities and sort of forms of violences. And so actually the ownership fund agenda, I think it's important to... For me, I think it's important to stress that this could be a really exciting institutional intervention for the left to expand and create new forms of democratic association in the economy. But it's only one part of a much richer, I think, tapestry that can attack some of the hierarchies and inequalities that you know, is laced through um, our society as it operates today. I'm glad you mentioned the Green New Deal because it seems like there's no other issue more than climate change that really shows how important it is to not only change what portion of a company's profits go to workers versus bosses, but really changing, using the democratization of the economy to change what companies do and what they make and how they make it by changing who runs them. What role has private ownership played in creating the climate crisis? And what role do you envision the socialization of ownership from natural resources to housing as playing in in confronting it in other words why why won't regulation cut it when it comes to solving climate change so the climate crisis is fundamentally a political crisis i think we have both the technical or for almost all the problems the technical capacity and also the sort of the resources and the capacity to mobilize investment at the scale needed to address many of these problems whether it's decarbonizing energy, retrofitting housing, you know, new forms of land use and agriculture. The problem is political, and the problem politically is this deep concentration of private power in which the interests of the Commonwealth are misaligned because of you know, profit maximization, because of short-termism, because of private control relative to the sort of public interest, etc., etc. So it's, it's fundamentally about ownership, and it's fundamentally about who controls resources, to what end, combine you know how do you combine labor and nature what is that metabolic relationship and how do we change that and i guess if the um the crisis is political and it's a, a crisis of deep inequalities of power then democratization and so you know and socialization seeks to address that by saying actually you know we should all have a say we should all have a share we should all have a stake we should all have voice in how labor and nature is combined and it's currently combined in ways that is a death spiral and a death drive frankly but it could be much more generative. And that world-making power of labor and nature doesn't have to be a metabolic rift that sort of destroys the earth and is laced through with forms of violences that you know, fall most heavily on those least responsible. 
But actually by socialising and nurturing and commoning our collective resources, we can steward our way through this through collective democratic negotiation. Because ultimately, if you know, decision-making power is rested in the hands of the few, not the many, then you're always going to sort of see a series of outcomes which favour that few. Whereas if we can socialise and common those resources, I think we give ourselves a much better shot of being able to negotiate the political crisis of climate change. One of the problems is timing. And so one of the things we need to do about um, ownership is not just that transformation of power and who has voice, but also it's a way of short-circuiting in some ways the slowness of some of the sort of inertia of established sort of markets, competitors, etc. etc. So public ownership, democratic ownership combined with the scaling of public investment is a way to direct and transform at a much faster speed and scale than the private sector on its own can deliver. And frankly we simply don't have time to you know to wait to delay because 1.6 is worse than 1.5, 1.7 is worth worse than 1.6 and being naive about the sort of pace and scale by which sort of tinkering, market-based allocations, sort of just relying on private investment, relying on the goodwill of Elon Musk is just, <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, we laugh, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's lunacy. I mean, it's, it's, it's lunacy. Or, but it's not lunacy, I guess, for those for who the beneficiaries, you know, they can buy their way out of the crisis that they're generating. Um, so I think democratic ownership is a way to sort of undergird sort of the world-making project the sort of natality of political life that we need to sort of inject into the green new deal because we need to create a post-carbon you know, world within sort of the next 10 to 15 years its institutions its infrastructures its ways of life and that has to rest on a new ecology of governance control voice power ownership one key to this you write is building public affluence explain what you mean by public affluence and how given that privatized leisure has for so long been considered synonymous with freedom, how it can be unmasked as in something that centrally obscures a system of domination that is driving us all to ecological catastrophe. Yeah, so I think um, so. This this idea of scaling public affluence in place of private unequal wealth is, I guess, it's you know a phrase of someone like George Monbiot in the UK. Um, someone like Jason Hickel, but also sort of regulars of the dig. So, you know, sort of Daniel and Alyssa and Kate and Thea and others um, about this idea that actually what we need is not 10,000 private cars. What we need is 100 electric buses. What we need is not, you know, a thousand. I'm now trying to sort of think of things that, you know, people individualize a, a thousand sort of like mega TV screens. Uh, we need, you know, one luxurious free local cinema or whatever it might be. As this idea of actually, you know, sort of a society of shared plenty, which I think has to recognise that there are genuine and sort of serious material limits, but that actually you know, scaling affluence and sort of breaking down the false scarcity that the market imposes, rather than relying on privatised consumption, private sort of ownership, private control, is actually a much more effective way of both of generating a more sort of equal uh, society, a society where everyone can flourish, everyone has capabilities and resources to flourish, but also ecologically, clearly, you know, the, the sort of the footprint, um, which I learned today apparently was a phrase, sort of carbon footprint was apparently a phrase invented by BP's public relations apparently um, as a way exactly about sort of 
privatizing, individualizing a sort of systemic crisis. But, you know, nonetheless, that footprint concept, you know, clearly that will be lower if you can communalize key, the provision of key sort of things we need to go on living. Um, you know, whether that's, you know, housing, care, sort of mobility, sort of leisure. And so I think it is that, you know, this idea of affluence, and it's not just about sort of, you know, the commoning of, you know, sort of transport. It's about sort of the shared resources for collective joy, for collective imagination, for play, for leisure. And that's why clearly things like four-day week and the sort of politicization and contestation of working time is so important in the sort of Green New Deal sort of political thrust. But it's about how do we provide the resources not just to sort of live, but to thrive, to sort of, you know, live well, to live in sort of all this sort of complexity and imaginative capacity that we each have individually, but as a collective, you know, is, you know, this extraordinary sort of um, collective capability of both you know, human and non-human life. Um, and then in terms of that... Pro- it's not, and it's not just like an, you know, ideological preference. I think the conservative or even moderate criticism would be that that is just like this ideological preference for for collectivism and i think there is that but there's also just like literally we can't afford the extraction that giving everyone an electric vehicle would require so the future of mobility is a really interesting test case for the sort of different imaginaries i guess around our future in a world of environmental breakdown so on the one hand you have trump's i think it was department of transport or sort of the treasury one of the sort of departments basically put out this memo when they were scrapping Obama's emission standards for vehicles saying what's the point in our working assumption the world's going to be sort of facing a six degree rise or more so why the hell should you burden individual sort of consumers American citizens etc etc to hell with it you know fight the world let's go for it that's one vision of sort of you know this like almost like this reveling in this sort of you know, the, the violence of you know sort of carbon consumption in a very unequal destabilized world where you, you know to hell with nihilistic accelerationism yeah exactly i mean exactly it is exactly that that is you know you can't put it out on the head but then the alternative in some ways is kind of it's not it's not the same but there are you know it, it bends towards similarly problematic ends which is kind of a sort of oh well what we'll do is we'll just sort of have loads of electric we'll just have exactly what we have today but electrified yeah, exactly the same, exactly your the same. life, your life right now, the world looking pretty much as it is, but just somehow no fossil fuels and the planet's okay. It, exactly. And all the hierarchies of fossil fuel capitalism and all the inequalities and all the sort of forms of domination and control and violence that sort of flow through it basically are sort of sustained. And I think you see that with mobility and electric vehicles, where A, it's of a cramped imagination about the potential for movement, for sort of connectivity, for sort of mobility. But then B, it's sort of like, if you care about sort of, glo- you know, the global community, you know, you simply need to look across the global south as a whole, extractive behaviours that would need to sort of be really amplified, frankly, to enable the electrification of all vehicle stock would be absolutely devastating, not just to sort of the biosphere, but to sort of human lives and human sort of communities across the global south at a devastating scale. And, you, you know, you see this in sort of you know, Chile already, the Congo, a whole sort of series of places, the deep violence of extractivism. And it's simply not really sustainable to sort of say, well, we'll just simply electrify the vehicle stock if what you care about in a Green New Deal scenario or sort of a just transition is exactly not just transition, but justice. And so you, know, you sort of then quite quickly hit upon the limits of, well, let's just, you know, everything today, but electrified. So then you sort of move towards the sort of Green New Deal and this public affluence, 
um, idea, which is actually, well, why don't we take this moment of world making, which is forced upon us because of the violence of breakdown, because of the sort of limited time we have, and because of this political opening we have on the left. In other words, things are changing, and the question is how. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, it's kind of the opposite of that sort of leopard thing around, you know, sort of, what was the quote again? <laughs> you know, everything how does everything change everything stays the same or whatever everything's changing so nothing can stay the same if i remember that i might try and redo that quote because that vaguely works but um the alternative would be not just electrifying individual cars but actually a new world you know emancipated from sort of you know the tyranny of the private car in cities you know paying due accord to you know people sort of with disabilities and the movement of you know communities who might need sort of the car so to speak electrified but actually trying to reimagine sort of the built environment reimagine sort of public luxury within the city cities of you know parks and rewilding and you know electric vehicles and superb you know decommodified sort of tram networks or cycle lanes or whatever it might be and obviously not just our cities but our towns and our rural communities and thinking through well we have to change the only question is how, and is it bending towards this nihilistic sort of eco-fascist sort of deeply violent society, or can we use the necessary change that it is upon us to build a much more emancipatory society of deepening freedom, deepening forms of connectivity and relationships? And I think that's that's the sort of challenge. And I think you know it's, it's a part, partly a question of imagination and political organisation and political mobilisation, and it's also a question of the institutionalization of ownership, control, governance, all these things that I guess Commonwealth have been working on. So I think that meshing together those things points towards why the Green New Deal must be about public affluence and an extension of freedom, but in some new decommodified communal forms rather than just sort of privatized provision. Before I cut you off earlier and sent, sent us on a productive tangent, but a tangent nonetheless, I think you were about to answer that question that I asked about, yes, it's clear to us that we can all get better shit and have more fun if we pool our resources and consume fun things together more. But how do you get on the kind of political and ideological level, how do you get it at the reality that this privatized leisure has for so long been the defining symbol of what freedom means, at least in the US and I imagine also in the UK? So I think, yeah, it goes back to this question of we're infrastructural species as per um, Jed's new book. And in some ways, not just infrastructural in terms of how we sort of reshape and brutalize nature and natural systems, but also we're infrastructural creatures in terms of the t- forms of joy and collectivity we have. And so actually, if we have a sort of politics that sort of really stresses building out and sort of creating new forms of infrastructure for collective joy you know libraries theaters maker spaces parks you know sports whatever it might be then that in and of itself can almost begin to reclaim leisure from the domain of a wholly privatized sphere towards something that is you know a communal experience of collectivity sort of collective joy and so i think partly it starts by sort of insisting that actually yes people might like the suvs today but actually and it's not saying, right, tomorrow, that's it, no more SUVs. But it is saying, actually, we can, through the infrastructure, the policies and, you know, frankly, the politics we put forwards, actually build a better world. And that, in some ways, it must be confident to say, actually, that is about building the sort of forms of institutions, the sort of distributions of resources that enables leisure that is much less environmentally stressful, but also much more sort of communal, public, and reclaims leisure as a sort of, sort of a collective experience. And so the transition in reclaiming leisure as collective, it has to, from the get-go and throughout, 
be just profoundly the opposite of austerity. I think the feeling of austerity is what both the right more explicitly and perhaps the center more implicitly has has used as a cudgel against demands to do what the science demands, which is to to end fossil fuel emissions. Yeah, exactly. I think um, sort of green austerity, I think, would be a classic approach to from sort of a liberal technocratic centrism to how how do we sort of address this sort of monumental challenge? And I think it would be a fundamental mistake, both in terms of our programmatic response to um, environmental breakdown and its drivers, but also you know, a fundamental political mistake. And exactly saying, actually, yes, there are material limits, and yes, there are sort of some ways of living, some forms of consumption that simply have to be repressed and sort of ended and ended quickly. But actually, what we need to build is sort of democratically managed society of shared plenty of emancipation of sort of the com- the commoning of resources that are currently artificially held scarce whether that's intellectual property land whatever it might be and um, or land maybe less as a sort of that is a sort of genuine constraint but like a lot of resources in some ways are not and actually it's about new ecologies of you know affluence that are, is public and democratic and ordered in very different ways and you know, frankly, it's a bit like you know, it's a bit like, well, can we have a carbon? Can we have a carbon tax to sort of tinker our way out of the problem? And that's hugely problematic in terms of justice, in terms of the size of the sort of tax you'd need to make that effective. But also, you know, it's about actually that's having a sort of sense of purposefulness, a sense of direction as sort of society and societies around where do we want to go and the forms of affluence we want to scale. And that requires a sort of much more expansive vision of the commons and around public investment, which I, you know, I believe quite clearly we can afford and we can go into the technical reasons why if that's of interest. But if not, I think it's fair to say that we can afford this transition. The question is we can't really afford it. So you know, we need to just get on with the politics of how do we build a world in which it's not an austere approach, but an approach of shared plenty, which nonetheless, which nonetheless recognises how we need to sort of dismantle the oppressions of fossil capitalism and scale up the capacity for all of us to live fairly and well. And I think we're in a more advantageous position on this point than we might think we are because we're not actually asking most people to give up so much because most people, even in terms of old models of consumption, because most people don't have that much. People are often more attached to the idea of having things that they don't possess at all because the system systematically denies them the opportunity for for leisure. This all leads me back to the the leads us back to the important question of of how reforms can create a political constituency to both sustain those reforms and create a political context that allows us to push beyond them. In this case, living in a more rejuvenated commons and a more thickly woven social fa- fabric would allow people to experience new forms of joy and freedom and in turn create the material basis for a transformed political consciousness and thus new political coalitions. And you write that under neoliberalism, that privatization, quote, bound new political coalitions to its agenda by providing real, if unevenly shared, material benefits to its supporters. What has that neoliberal coalition been how is it created? And what might we learn from that history of its making and perhaps currently its unraveling as we seek to to unmake it and make something new in its place? I mean, that I think that is the fundamental 
question of you know, how can we build a coalition that can then intervene both through incremental transformation, but also then through ruptural transformation to sustain not just sort of, you know, a tinkering around with, but a fundamental transformation of the underlying institutions that generate and distribute wealth and capability and dignity in our economy. And I think obviously in a radically different direction, but nonetheless, to some degree at the same scale that neoliberalism and neoliberal actors, and of course there's, you know, a whole sort of variety of things that you know we can sort of say it's a sort of form of governance economic rationality I mean, i think sort of quinn slobodian's argument around sort of this deep drive to insulate the economy from democratic intervention is in some ways you know the most useful overarching form but i think if we sort of look at how sort of neoliberal actors neoliberalism did this over you know different geographies different sort of times they were able to basically pull apart some of the sort of coalitions that were attached to some political formation attached to post-war social democratic institutions towards this much more private, financialized form of, sort of social provision. And so to take one example would be sort of, I guess, right to buy in the UK, which was the privatization or uh, sort of the sort of massive subsidy for the selling off of council or public housing stock to residents in those council stocks. And so in doing so, they hugely diminished the stock of public housing, therefore you know, being one of the key drivers of subsequent increases in insecurity, in sort of increasing rents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in the private sector. But also sort of, you know, privatize a huge amount of wealth into from you know, social wealth created through sort of common investment into private household hands. But obviously, you know, what that was quite clever at doing was a tapping into a story of freedom. So you know, the left has to, have a, has to have a story and a politics of expanding radical freedom to all, but the right also had it, and we should learn from that in the sense of like you know the freedom of own your own home. You, you know, famously, councils in the UK have said, okay, you've got to paint your door the same, and so Thatcher's thing was like you know buy a house and you can paint your door whatever color you want, you can paint your walls whatever color you want, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sort of exploited the the top down nature of of the post-war settlement exactly which you know to be clear you know and i should stress it earlier a little further you know when we talk about democratic ownership models it's exactly not returning to you know the centralized bureaucracy of state ownership in the post-war period just as we don't you know we just as we want to move beyond the centralized bureaucracy of large corporate forms of ownership but i think it wasn't just sort of you know that's sort of the valence politically of autonomy of you know capability of sort of the freedom to sort of act that, you know, that just sort of in a sort of illusory manner, but nonetheless promised. But it's also clearly, you know, she put a lot of wealth into the pockets of key political constituencies. You know, there was an electoral coalition of sort of, you know, sort of, I guess, lower middle class or sort of you know, the upper end of the working class that she was able to detach from sort of a laborist Labour Party tradition. And obviously there's political complications around that, but sort of detach from that coalition and put it into her column by enriching people, by privatising public wealth. And so, sort of conversely, you know, things like the ownership funds, in some ways, kind of attempt to do the reverse by saying, actually, we will give you, in a sort of collective democratic form rather than individualized form, sort of control over the company that you work in. But also, we're going to transfer wealth that currently is privately held and sort of flows overwhelmingly to sort of wealthy shareholders, et cetera, et cetera, to you. You, know, you will share in the wealth you generate. And it sort of tells a sort of narrative, but it also literally materially says the left will sort of 
deliver more for your for you and that's where stuff like you know decommodification of the fundamental building blocks we need to live to all of us need to live well and freely and well so pressures of marketization that sort of puts resources and capability and power in the hands of ordinary people and so sort of, and i think obviously we need to sort of have a very a much more interesting or ambitious rather i guess than interesting politics of the, sort of the household institution but sort of begin to de-stress sort of the household and give more capability and freedom to the sort of individuals and sort of you know forms of kinship alice of um sophie lewis around or well, you know how can we expand out freedom for individuals and de-stress sort of the house of politics and sort of enable new forms of solidarity and kinship to emerge and i think so you know the neoliberal lesson if there is one is exactly that we need to be very sort of strategically clear-sighted around the types of interventions we can make which both expand freedom in all directions so that is egalitarian and democratic and universal but also can materially bring with and bind into the left's new political economy substantial sections of population so your suv person is like well actually not only will you live better and well you will have more resources and capability with you know an electric bus network and a tram line and if you really want to go in your SUV on the weekend there's going to be a sort of you know communally owned cooperative network of electric SUVs but there's going to be like one per 10,000 people in the town not one per 10 people um so and imagine all the shit you could do on your much shorter bus ride uh instead of getting stuck in traffic in your private I mean exactly vehicle. I mean so the, the tyranny of the sort of you know the motor car is is extraordinary and I think a real opportunity to sort of say actually you know the sort of extraordinary ecology of the city and the sort of you know immense sort of political nature of the city and you know and towns of course too can be sort of is plastic and we can do this much much more and it's in plastic the- in particular because there's an incredible contradiction and Andre Gortz wrote a great essay about this between the ideology of the motor private motor car and the lived reality of it which i think any is exploitable because people no one everyone hates traffic <laughs> we're yeah we, indeed exactly, and, the, and that the, the gap there i mean there's there's many things in our lives there is a huge gap between this sort of ideological promise and the sort of lived reality but really the motor car you know that sort of buccaneering sense of um you know freedom and sort of you know i blame bruce springsteen that sort of you know that idea of you know sort of born to run and all that stuff um you know it, it of immense power although you know it's sort of you know even from its origins it was kind of built you know bound up in the death drive so um you know that book the shock of the anthropocene that came out a couple of years ago by a couple of french academics that one of their chapters was on sort of the relationship between sort of carbon civilization and the military industrial complex and one of the things that was always struck me and stayed with me was one of the key reasons for suburbanization and sort of the enthronement of the car as the sort of fundamental political unit of mobility within sort of the american psyche and american sort of geography and built environment was in the highways act in the 1950s with eisenhower mm-hmm. it was exactly because they wanted to disperse populations because of the threat of nuclear armageddon and that actually wow. dispersed communities and put the car as king rather than sort of dense lived cities that made you much more vulnerable to like first strikes of game planning and that was one of the key reasons why you had this sudden huge suburbanization expansion the car became king and was bound up in sort of you know our, again our capacity to intervene in nature in a way that a nuclear bomb is a more immediate form of death drive, but you know that our current mode of extractivism is, you know, of that same way of labour and nature combining towards ways that which you know life 
not just human life, but all forms of life cannot sustain at a sort of enduring rate. So I think, um, yeah, that's sort of that gap between the sort of the ideological promise of neoliberalism, of actually neoliberalism will, you know, neoliberal capitalism will expand your freedom, will give you more choice. And yet the reality is, you know, deep ensnarement in debt in its forms of work, which are increasingly policed, hierarchical, in which sort of surplus is sort of extracted upwards and outwards. The whole sort of caboodle of sort of capitalist freedom necessarily relies on unfreedoms for others. And I think that reality, I think, is something that politically the left, I think, needs to be much more ambitious in pushing um, and sort of saying, actually, you know, we don't have to sort of live with the old dogmas. And in fact, we can't. Yeah, if there's a, if there's a lesson from from neoliberalism, it's not any sort of policy or ideology that we need to borrow from neoliberalism, but rather an opportunity to learn at how neoliberalism exploited the shortcomings and failings of the post-war settlement to sell a superficially compelling vision of, of freedom to to people. And what the lesson really is then is more taking socialism back to its 19th century radical democratic roots. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely right. I think, you know, there's there's a risk that, you know, we sort of mon pelerinize our sort of historiography of neoliberalism in, you know, and certainly in like think tank land in particular. I appreciate obviously right. academic land is, is you know much more nuanced and textured, but there's a risk that it's kind of like it it's viewed and the lessons we learn from it is, oh, you know, there was no contingency. It was kind of, you know, it, there was just a bunch of, Overwhelmingly, men. In fact, I think the site was almost all men. Um, you know, sitting around in their high mountain top, came down. They waited for the moment. They sort of were in their think tank lairs for twenty years, and then bang, they had a plan. And obviously, that's not quite how it occurred. And it was full of missed opportunities. And the left had, you know, sort of moments that you know, sort of paths not taken. You know, the minor plan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but not just that. And it's much more contingent than it's given. But exactly, it was that sort of flexibility that ability to sort of you know wars of maneuver as well as wars of sort of position that enabled it to sort of expand out from the crevices that it established in the sort of 70s to radically expand out over time to be a sort of world making force that it has been and continues to be today and I, and I think you know in that sense you know the 19th century you know maybe you know, it wasn't just a sort of post-war period, you know, the Pikettian exception of the post-war period of sort of compressed inequalities, but maybe the entire 20th century was a sort of period of exception and actually the sort of politics of the 19th century of sort of radical democracy, of sort of, you know, communal luxury, you know, sort of Paris Commune and sort of Kristen Ross's book, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there are maybe some, you know, the sort of breakdown of sort of very hegemonic blocks of uh, production. Maybe there are some quite interesting currents around sort of emancipation, around sort of radical democratic politics that I think we could draw upon in terms of how can we react to the contingencies and opportunities of the structural crisis that I think will only accelerate and deepen of not just neoliberalism, but capitalism and extractivism as a whole. Well, in terms of paths not taken and contradictions that neoliberals exploited, you made a point in in an essay that you wrote that reminded me a lot of Melinda Cooper's work. If I had have your argument right, you argued that that while the the post-war settlement in the UK extended state ownership over the commanding heights of the economy, that 1960s social movements pushed for a more radical democratization of economic power, which, if if I read you right, is like Cooper's argument, a critique of this conventional wisdom on parts of the left 
that what the new social movements represented was a turn toward identity and away from economy, which was then co-opted by neoliberalism. What, what's your assessment of, of that period, what they were trying to do and how the rise of neoliberalism relates to it? And I think exactly that, that this wasn't some sort of drift away towards identitarian politics and this, you know, sort of identity politics, which I think even on, even if it was, I don't think that is the problem that sort of lots of people seem to make out. It seems to be today, which so anyway, but that might be a different um, sort of path <laughs> to set this down. But um but exactly, it was about democratizing sort of economic practices and social infrastructures, which are necessarily economic, and you know, very, a p- political contestation that didn't accept a sort of post-war settlement that was very hierarchical, very gendered, very racialized, and in a sort of world systems level, deeply reliant on sort of circuits of accumulation that were, you know, were sort of not even neo-colonial, they were still colonial in many instances, and deeply bound up in sort of racial and patriarchal forms of sort of capitalism and extraction from the global south and indeed obviously in the operation of um, economies in the global north. So, yeah, I think to sort of silo it, silo it off to say, oh, well, you know, the neoliberals, you know, they just took advantage of this sort of turn to like, you know, people sort of caring about gender and race and sort of sexuality. It's just like this sort of kind of facile uh, argument and that's probably a straw man of people who say that anyway. But, I mean, I would agree with you that Cooper's sort of lens is much more useful way to try and interrogate that and i think moving forward to our own sort of areas of saying actually you know we need you can't separate these things out and you need a politics that is sort of broad enough to not just broad but necessarily has to intertwine and have a much more rich embroidery of what is the economic what is the natural what is the social how they're intertwined and how do we democratize them in ways that sort of current institutions not just are failing to do but structurally cannot and so I think that that's a bit deep challenge. And I think one of the things, you know, you know, how the family as a unit and the sort of privatization of social sort of infrastructures and the shifting onto sort of the balance sheet of the family, I think that, you know, in reverse, that's quite an interesting thing to think about. Because in some ways we face a sort of a, a multiple series of crises of balance sheets in a sort of slightly like wonky sense. So, you know, the sort of right. you know, the balance sheet of, you know, social reproduction falls far too heavily and is therefore far too like you know highly like hierarchical and gendered on the the, the private household uh, balance sheet when it should should and could be brought back into sort of the public balance sheet or the commons so whether that's you know communal kitchens communal care you know whatever it might be um and the same goes for ecology and exactly and so the same goes for ecology and then the same in some ways goes you know we, we kind of live in a sort of era of a dual sort of uh, deeps of metas of balance sheets in that the sort of financial crisis was a, a sort of crisis of private balance sheets of a set of interlocking oligopolistic, oligopolistic uh, sort of transatlantic in the main financial institutions that was rescued by the sort of public balance sheet. And now we have, and in part because of those exact same financial institutions and how they invest, we now have a sort of ecological balance sheet which is deeply in deficit. And the only way we can do, get dig ourselves out of that and repair fraying natural systems that's sort of not we, but sort of capitalism has broken, is by reclaiming onto the balance sheet the scale of investment we need to drive a Green New Deal, the scale of investment needed to sort of transition to a sort of post-carbon society. And so in some ways, just as the public balance sheet rescued and stabilised capitalism in the sort of post-crisis moment, in the environmental crisis, we need sort of the public balance sheet, the power of the public balance sheet to de-stress the household balance sheet and de-stress the environmental balance sheet by saying, and obviously, you know, 
be clear, not saying we should economize nature and sort of turn into balances, but just this, this broad imagine of saying, actually, we need to sort of radically extend what the public provides, how the public invests, so that we can address these sort of multiple sort of balance sheet crises. This sounds incredibly wonky, and I'm not even sure if it, if it makes entire sense, but, you know, in, you know, this idea of who bears the risk, where does the burden fall, how can we de-stress and build autonomy and power for ordinary people and repair fraying natural systems. And partly that surely is through public investment, through public ownership, through new forms of democratic control. Yeah, no, I don't think it's too abstract at all. But one kind of incredibly, perhaps the most concrete way to look at this of of all is is, is through land, which cuts across so many of the different issues that we face in that Commonwealth Address. As you write, quote, land is nature's gift, Yet it is also the oldest and deepest enclosure, from a broken housing system to deep inequalities of wealth, from the dynamics driving financialization to environmental breakdown, unequal patterns of land ownership and use drive many of our dysfunctions. What can we learn from the role that land has played in the history of capitalism? It is just, it is like quite literally the fun, the, the the original <laughs> enclosure, and how it has had has come to underpin almost every form of domination that I can think of. And then in turn, how does looking at that history and that reality allow us to envision the possibilities, the opportunities that land's democratization might hold for comprehensively addressing everything almost from housing to agriculture to fossil fuels? And and what land policies in particular do you see as most urgent and vital? You know, the enclosure of land was, as you say, sort of the driving force, the first form of violent primitive accumulations sort of written in letters of fire and blood, as sort of Marx said. And it was the sort of the core enclosure that enabled then sort of capitalist dynamics of accumulation to sort of become kick started, you know, sort of early um, or sort of late 17th century in England, etc., etc., expanding outwards. And so it's the bedrock, uh, literally and metaphorically, by which sort of capital systems then emerge and expand from. And it remains one of the sort of most valuable financialized assets um, in sort of, sort of capitalism as a sort of system today. I mean, I think in terms of its most recent history, I mean, again, UK experience, but that sort of that opening line you mentioned sort of in some ways draws on um, Brett Christopher's recent book on sort of land as the old, sort of oldest enclosure and sort of going back to sort of that point earlier around Thatcher's right to buy. I mean, that was, you know, the, the, the sort of most extensive privatization of Thatcherism was actually land and the selling off of public land and sort of common land. And so it's always a source of value. Capitalism always needs sources of value outside of itself, external to itself to sort of drive cycles of accumulation and so clearly privatization of land the financialization of land the sort of and and just to pause you briefly a sort of corollary to that in the global south is the neoliberal obsession with with land titling of privatizing land and giving individuals title to it as supposedly being some sort of panacea for for development which is obviously crap but exactly when exactly in exactly indigenous communities indigenous practice around commoning of land and the stewardship of shared resources that shows the way forward frankly and exactly so this is a bizarre inversion like actually i you know is it hernando de sotos exactly just like well privatize all this turn into tiny little parcels of land and there you go it's fine what is actually it's about saying 
commoning of land and then sort of the democratic negotiation of how that land, you know, this resource is shared and used not just for human life but for non-human life in much more generative ways. We have the practices that are there, but it, and that's you know that's exactly why you see you know Bolsonaro so violently attacking sort of indigenous communities as a sort of prefiguration of the sort of destruction of the Amazon and the sort of privatization of it and the sort of agribusiness of mining coalition because it's exactly those practices of commoning of communalizing land and sort of nature and that sort of democratic balancing of the sort of various you know, rights you know, of human and non-human life to it and its research you know, and its its use that stands in the way of a sort of eco-fascist project so yeah I, mean, I think that's 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 exactly right in terms of some of this you know this land as a sort of neoliberal sort of tool in the sort of global south and then i think i mean necessarily then one of the sort of key things both in terms of redressing wealth inequality, redressing the housing crisis, and also I think clearly, you know, shifting forms of agricultural practice and land use that is fundamental to carbon emissions and environmental breakdown in the round is new forms of land stewardship, is new forms of land ownership, is new forms of land use. And so Raj Patel and others have written um, very well on this in terms of, sort of new forms of you know, farming, of agriculture, of land use that is sort of much more in a sort of commoning tradition, much more in a sort of less sort of intensive agribusiness model and much more relying on the sort of techniques and knowledge and know-how of, of ordinary sort of farmers, communities in rural areas, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, I mean, one of the most interesting documents on an environmental lens, but also on a sort of socioeconomic and not that they can be un. Un, not that it can be separated, but sort of, nonetheless, sort of one of the most interesting documents on the interplay between housing, wealth inequality, land use, sort of environmental breakdown uh, of recent years is a report commissioned for the Labour Party, Land for the Many, um, which has a series of incredibly important recommendations around you know, extension of public land, cooperative land, sort of, you know, de-stressing that, you know, decommodifying housing. And one of the things that I'd particularly flag as an idea which Beth Stratford, an academic and activist in the UK, uh, whose work's really excellent on sort of land and financialization and left political economy in general, she's has really driven this idea of a sort of common ground trust in which you'd have a sort of a trust on behalf of all all residents um, in a sort of bounded uh, political community. You know, it could work at competing scales, but that trust was sort of work with individuals, housing co-ops, local councils, local authorities um, to sort of buy housing and the trust would use sort of the power of public financing to buy the underlying land and the sort of the sort of purchaser would buy the sort of bricks and mortar and that's obviously a much much less sort of that's like I think it's roughly a third of the cost of of housing whereas you know two-thirds of it roughly in the UK is taken up by the cost of land and then the sort of person or community that would sort of buy the land and buy the housing with the uh, common ground trust they would then pay a sort of decommodified non-market rate renting the land so to speak to the trust but when they sort of sold it or moved on the land would remain in the common ownership of sort of the population as a whole so it's this mechanism for extending the socialization of land and so bringing land back from private control into sort of you know, if not the commons and at least a public form of stewardship of land that's definancialized yeah so that's sort of like it decommodifies the land, and in doing so, definancializes the housing. Exactly, and exactly, Maybe. yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then it's so. In some ways, there are echoes here with the ownership fund policy, in the sense of 
this steady accumulation and the sort of socialization of assets that are currently held privately, held and governed and used for very different motives, for very different ends, towards, you know, non-financialized, democratic, inclusive forms, whether that's land, whether it's the institution of the company, whether it's, you know, a whole variety of things. But that sense of accumulation towards a sort of tipping point where strategically you can build the coalitions, the political sort of power to affect much bigger structural shifts even on top of what's already happened there and so you can see with the common ground trust you can see how as you say definancializing land allows you then to have much more interesting articulation of public space of public housing of beauty and design you know use of land for very different ends and so that could be the type of sort of incremental through to ruptural institutional sort of intervention you could use in somewhere like land to create a very different ecology of sort of land use and sort of um, patterns of land holding. I'm Aziz Rana and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century by Eric Olin Wright, with an afterword by Michael Burroway. Capitalism has transformed the world and increased our productivity, but at the cost of enormous human suffering. Our shared values equality and fairness, democracy and freedom, community and solidarity can provide both the basis for a critique of capitalism and help to guide us toward a socialist and democratic society. Eric Olin Wright has distilled decades of work into this concise and tightly argued manifesto. Analyzing the varieties of anti-capitalism, assessing different strategic approaches, and laying the foundations for society dedicated to human flourishing. How to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century is an urgent and powerful argument for socialism and an unparalleled guide to help us get there. Another world is possible. How to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century by Eric Olin Wright with an afterword by Michael Burroway. Out now from Verso Books. One of your most daunting proposals is to democratize finance. And I think that's so tricky because organized finance is at present such a massively destructive and nefarious force in the world. My question is, what does finance currently do and what might it more ideally do if people exercised democratic control over that, both in the short term and in maybe a more modest form when we still have things like Goldman Sachs existing in some recognizable form? And, and what might it look like in a more radically ideal long term? So, so finance is this vast infrastructural power. And right now, this, this is world making capacity to sort of allocate and bring to life sort of future projects is, you know, overwhelmingly bound up in the control of a sort of series of narrow, oligopolistic, systemically intertwined financial institutions. 
And you saw that in the financial crisis, and frankly, not much has changed. And so you have a deeply financialized financial system in which sort of the share of profits of its financialization of more and more spheres, you know, of the household economy, of the social economy, of higher education, etc., etc., expands and expands outwards, in which the sort of the rentierization of the economy that then flows from that extends higher and higher, and in which the power to decide the future is in the hands of a narrow set of financial actors and financial institutions. But of course, we absolutely need finance. You know, the Green New Deal cannot operate without finance. So, I mean, how how could that operate? The loaning of capital to people and organizations that need said capital to do things that they cannot without those loans do <laughs> exactly yeah exactly and exactly and so and by um, in that choice they sort of decide between competing futures and at the moment they sort of decide a future which is about profit maximization regardless of the consequences it's around financial returns that are maximized and it's about sort of the grooves by which you know capitalism operates so i think to respond to that we would need two strategies sort of a, the first one would be sort of incrementalist, non-reformist reforms. That's sort of radical intention, but aren't necessarily sort of overthrowing everything right now because, as you say, they're sort of deeply embedded in their sort of the high towers of finance today. And so that would be things like radically changing sort of capital requirements so that you know to shrink the profitability of banks, it would be looking at sort of the collateral that central banks allow financial institutions to to hold and sort of making you know greening those so sort of disincentivizing banks to hold sort of carbon heavy assets and then i think it would be things like you know regulation and taxation some of those traditional toolkits but then i think what you want systemically is to scale up a network of public and democratic finance so that would be national investment banks with rooted regional banks that are sort of focused on scaling sectors or geographies towards very different purposes and motives towards relative to finance as it operates today. And you could do that through a new compact between fiscal and monetary policy, between sort of the Fed and you know, the Treasury in the US or the Bank of England and you know, the Treasury in the UK, by which sort of, sort of governments, democratic governments, would issue bonds which the sort of central bank would buy, thus keeping their borrowing costs low, use those bonds to sort of capitalise sort of investment banks which could then sort of scale by sort of leveraging that initial capitalization and then you could quickly see the sort of displacement of private financing of certain activities via public sort of public good focused financing not sort of profit maximization focused financial institutions so you could see this sort of double movement one on the one hand constraining the power of private finance through new regimes around capital requirements around sort of the regulatory architectures sort of Reembedding finance in and making it subservient to the real needs of you know, ecology and the economy in a sort of generative sense, not an extractive sense. But then also because it's sort of like a two-step process, we have to both change what finance is investing in, what they're loaning capital towards, but also just reorienting it towards lending in a more basic level and away from these layers and layers of abstract bets that are placed upon various financial markets that led to the. Um, whole economy blowing up a decade ago in the first place. Yeah, exactly. It's about sort of ending sort of the reign of fictitious capital and sort of re-embedding finance in sort of the material world and serving material needs and that double movement. I mean, I think there's a couple of, I think um, there's a piece uh, in Open Democracy by Ben Ray, I think it is, on how do you definancialize and what are the strategies and sort of this combination of a war of movement and a war of position. 
and sort of entering into institutions and how do we do it that's worth reading. And then I think she may well have been on your show already, but if not, sort of, you know, Grace Blakely, who's got a US tour coming out uh, or coming up soon and whose book was out recently, has also sort of got a new book on how does the left challenge financialization and sort of financial institutions. And clearly, you know, it's not about being anti-finance. It's about sort of radically repurposing, democratizing right. and bringing you know, private financial power to heal and scaling democratic direction of finance towards social needs, social goals. Overwhelmingly, in this case, the scaling of those forms of public affluence we talked about, the repairing of natural systems and the sort of transformation of our economy away from private accumulation towards you know, ecological reproduction, sort of just forms of social reproduction, forms of nurturing, forms of caring. And that will necessarily require a much denser, more democratic, more rooted financial system than the one we have today. You also make the democratization of data and technology a top priority. You write, quote, whoever owns the robots and our data will increasingly reap the rewards of technological change. How do you see automation? And I think I'm going to do a show entirely on automation soon, but it's good to talk about all the time. How do you see automation and also this increasing centrality of data to profit making? How do you see that changing the economy now and into the future? And what might placing them under democratic control look like concretely? So I think, you know, automation and technical systems, they're fundamentally political in the sort of sense that they intervene to reshape matter towards, you know, directive ends, and therefore they should be the subject of contestation politically. And I think the first point is to say there are very di- there's no sort of set future, whether utopian or dystopian or indeed mundane, although it's hard to see a mundane world in the sort of instability of climate breakdown. But there's no sort of one set future for us. It will be determined by the types of choices and ultimately the types of politics and powers that we can sort of align and cohere. And so on the one hand, managed poorly, you could see a world of, you know, widening inequality of the automation of tasks, which leads to sort of the immiseration of labor and the benefits flowing to the owners, controllers of capital and sort of highly skilled labor. The alternative is this future of shared plenty in which we can rearrange the institutions of ownership and control, not just of the machines themselves, but of the underlying sort of property relations of the companies that deploy them, of IP, etc., whether as socialised or sort of common forms of property. So thereby sort of the benefits of the universal inheritance of technology, which is ultimately like a layered up sort of set of investments, institutions, legal infrastructures um, that enable automating technologies and technical systems to operate, those benefits accrued to sort of the commonwealth, sort of the common good, sort of the sort of social welfare of all of us, rather than just sort of the private gains of of a few. And so I think that's so that's where this point around ownership comes in, where it's like, how do we actually socialize capital? So the deployment of capital in a sort of you know automating automating heavy economy actually works for all of us and opens up the possibility for reduced working week, sort of a much more emancipatory politics of work and non-work. And the second thing is, and you know, it's always vital to stress with all these sort of technologies, there's a sort of, you know, there's obviously a political use towards you know, those who have a bias towards the status quo distribution of uh, its benefits, to sort of almost dematerialize technologies and sort of say, oh, well, you know, sort of the cloud or whatever it might be, it's kind of beyond the realm of sort of materiality. But of course, Automation in general, what we're talking about is machine learning or deep learning systems, which sort of take vast pools of data 
process them and turn the information by which we can act upon the world or sort of machines can act upon the world, whether it's hardware or software. And therefore, sort of data, raw information about our movements, about our sort of you know, bodily activities, our sort of emotions, et cetera, et cetera, becomes hugely... The topography of our faces. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, it basically transforms almost all sites of social interaction, all landscapes into sites for accumulation, sites for the transformation of information into monetary value for those who control the data, control the sort of technologies to process, analyze, and produce this. So that then says, A, what are the type of data worlds, um, which is a phrase that Jonathan Gray, an academic at King's in London, talks about, and brilliant on this work. What are the type of data worlds that we want to construct? And that is both, what are the types of data we don't want to collect, that we want to leave in our heads, leave in our bodies, leave in our relationships, much like we want to leave carbon in the ground when it comes to climate change? What are the types of data worlds we want to construct? So what do we leave behind? But also what do we trace? What do we sort of collect in ways that can then be used for emancipatory ends, for sort of forms of coordination, forms of democratic planning, forms of non-market provision that don't simply reproduce and amplify existing inequalities, but actually begin to dismantle those and scale up more emancipatory practices, more egalitarian distributions of power and resources in the first place. And to do that, I think we obviously need to think much more carefully about the legal infrastructures, the intellectual property rights around data, its collection, its retention, its use, and move from a sort of position of enclosure behind sort of the sort of siloed walls of the sort of pla- the universal platforms that are seeking to enclose all of social life behind their sort of datafied garden walls into a commons in which data is a public resource, a sort of a common good that we can apply to solve our common problems. And I think in saying that, it's obviously vital to stress we have to be attendant, very attendant to concerns around privacy, particularly around sort of the rights, securities and sort of needs of marginalised communities who obviously, you know, have seen the collection, retention and analysis of data at scale throughout their lives and throughout their sort of communities in very repressive, oppressive ways. But clearly, I think any of the sort of vital challenges we face from climate breakdown to sort of ensuring sort of the plenty that we create is sort of shared communally in ways that sort of enable universal flourishing will require sort of the analysis at scale of data, whether it's sort of for, you know, the sort of decommodified bus networks we talked about to flow through smoothly through the sort of the topography of the sort of post-carbon city, whether it's around sort of non-market coordination, whether it's about, you know, applying, you know, machine learning to sort of get rid of sort of forms of drudgery and make sure that work is a sort of experience of you know creativity and joy and caring and nurturing. You know, I think we'll need that. And so then we need to think very carefully about who controls Socialist it. cybernetics type stuff. Well, exactly. I mean, you cannot have social cybernetics <laughs> without a collective right to data, essentially. And so actually the infrastructural capacity of the left to make a world that is not just within the grooves of what exists today, but actually cybernetically emancipated rests on our ability to contest and reshape the legal architectures and the physical infrastructures that generate, collate, analyze, and sort of transform data into interventions in the material world, which currently are geared towards increasing accumulation in an unequal and sort of unjust fashion, but actually with due thought and with the right type of politics and coalitions around it, could be repurposed towards being a sort of site for collective flourishing. In terms of the current grooves of that things are in, it, this is a 
a huge departure from the current calls to to regulate tech, which have gotten more high profile and certainly more more aggressive in recent months and years. Why is why is ownership and thus governance? Why does that get at something that a liberal regulatory approach does not? So I guess my answer would be we we want one alphabet, not twenty Bings. You know, if you see what I mean. So like the the thing with data is it's of its powers and its sociality, its ability to sort of overlay and generate sort of insights at scale. And so breaking up Google into twenty little sort of search engines so that they're all like like Bing or, you know, does anyone still use Bing? I don't know. But like, you know, it's obviously like much, much less effective because it's got much sort of smaller pools of data and analytical capability. And so I think that sort of um, antitrust agenda sort of kind of mistakes the key power of data, which is, you know, it's a social achievement. It's a collective, you know, it's powers and it's collectivity and scale. It's a natural monopoly. Exactly. And so and then so then and which is not to say, oh, well, all, you know, all our problems would be solved, you know, if the federal government nationalized alphabet, clearly not, um, not least because you know, putting all that power in the hands of the state rather than sort of a democratic institution would be you know, deeply problematic. But it is to say, I think we need to sort of just as sort of you know, the antitrust movement came up with new legal, political and sort of regulatory interventions in its own time to deal with the challenges of sort of, you know, oligopoly at the time. So we need to come up with our own politics and that's sort of politics centered around collective rights and control of data and ownership of these sort of underlying company form to deal with the challenges of the rise of the universal platform and the enclosure of data behind you know, these vast corporate entities. And so I think the liberal sort of playbook, I think, doesn't really get you the collective benefits of data, but might get you a world of sort of 10 bings. And I think that's sort of, you know, not what we want to be aiming for. <laughs> One challenge to all of this, and this is going back to how we deal with the hegemony, however, in crisis of of liberty as privatized consumption and, and whatnot. One challenge seems to be that the neoliberalism has meant this sustained attack on the very identity of of worker and and also of the collective identity and subject of the working class in part because not just because of this ideological warfare underway but because very concretely the the casualization and precarization of of work of labor relations have fundamentally changed people's relationship to work does the left need to address people as workers in different ways and beyond just the category of worker, as the left has conventionally understood it? In other words, to what extent do we need to create new subjects and remake people's relationship to work? And to what degree do we instead have to remake left politics to address subjects as they have been remade by neoliberalism? So I don't think we can build a left politics on the subjectivity that neoliberalism has deliberately and with a lot of political effort created, nor can we build it on sort of the atomized sort of power of the working class. And so I think clearly what that requires is a new politics of work that is both sort of more collective and more democratic, but also much more expansive in its sense of what work is and decenters while sort of recognizing the precariousness and sort of addressing the precariousness of wage labor but decenters wage labor as the sort of specific site of work and the sort of imaginary of the left and i think you know that and again the green new deal allows us into that conversation because 
and sort of someone like Alyssa Battisoni has written on this very well, you know, it allows us to shift from a focus on sort of production for accumulation towards the work of social reproduction, of ecological reproduction around nurturing, around caring, about providing for the means by which we re reproduce ourselves and sort of sustain future generations. And so I think that can sort of bring in sort of new forms of subjectivity, new forms of sort of politics of work for the left, which I think is much more sort of open and sort of broad and ultimately I think actually much more hegemonic than sort of just sort of laborist sort of you know the wage relationship type of work that isn't necessarily though to say you know, the working class and sort of sense of you know, relationship through wage labor clearly there's huge value um, for the left there in actually saying life not just nurturing sort of life in the sort of sense of ecological or social reproduction but life through a living wage life through having time you know reducing working hours so you have non-waged sorry, non-working time expanding over time, life through having dignity and autonomy and sort of discretion at work, life through sort of the joy of collective enterprise in sort of the best forms of communal work that it can be, should be at the centre of sort of a left political economy as well. And that's where there are tools that clearly, you know, clearly obviously you need to be guard against sort of them falling short of their standards, but that's where sort of solidaristic, solidaristic institutions from trade unions to sort of, you know, sort of, a regulatory state that, you know, even if there's democratised ownership would still, you know, ensure there's minimum standards, minimum sort of, you know, sort of living wages, et cetera, et cetera. That's where, you know, there's just no silver bullet, but a whole sort of host of an embroidery of interventions can sort of scale up solidaristic mutual forms of endeavour and creativity and enterprise. But I think um, clearly the sort of financialised, individualised, sort of often sort of ensnared by debt sort of figure of the sort of neoliberal subject has to sort of be broken down and make way for sort of subjectivity that sort of finds expression in collective joy and sort of communal experience in nurturing and caring and sort of reproduction rather than production simply for sort of the maximization of sort of profit for capital and so that's you know a political sort of challenging contest but I think in some ways I think the sort of point is neoliberalism yeah, and in capitalism but neoliberalism particular uh, as that's how the question was posed works very hard to generate those types of subjectivity it isn't a natural sort of political formation that we sort of come into but actually works very hard to sort of um, generate those logics those institutional formations those political identities and so actually in some ways i do think we are working with a potential sort of you know malleability and a sort of porousness and a sense of uh, hopefulness and natality of like a life of action and political reimagination that hasn't been completely economized and actually i do think there's i have you know huge sort of optimism in that sense that the natality of political life can overcome the economization of neoliberalism how do you feel about universal basic income because i i honestly am i haven't given it enough serious consideration but it's constantly being talked about uh, on the one hand i like the idea of of a more expansive welfare state that provides people with opportunities to live outside the private market and thus empowers them vis-a-vis -vis capital by giving them a means of subsistence safe from market discipline and i also like the potential of compensating domestic and reproductive labor but then i'm also quite skeptical primarily because so many of the people pushing ubi seems so patently interested in facilitating facilitating a worsening status quo by making that dystopian status quo minimally bearable um, a sort of like post-neoliberal Fordism 
uh, resurrection of like minimalist Fordism. The sort of proposal pushed by the likes of of Andrew Yang in the U.S. It, it seems just like prima facie to ignore and almost designed to ignore the core problem of unequal power relations rooted in property ownership. So anyways, that's my ambivalence. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, we should definitely sort of beware Californians bearing gifts. So right. you know, the, the the Yang Silicon Valley sort of, oh, well, here, you know, here's a token sort of element by which you can buy a small amount of autonomy in the market doesn't address the sort of deep structural inequalities rooted in unequal sort of property relations, which you point towards. So absolutely, I think, you know, let's you know, put aside that type of sort of uh, vision of UBI. I think clearly there is a left UBI which sort of seeks to and sees in the UBI a way of achieving the things that you sort of spoke to, which is non-domination, sort of emancipation from the wage relationship and the market, and sort of you know rewarding and making sure those who don't sort of work within wage relations have the security and the dignity and the autonomy and the resources that all should be owed and provides a basic sort of standard by which people in, can engage in life outside of the market. So I think there's fundamentally like useful and important things that it sort of gestures towards that it articulates. So my concern, you know, potentially because I'm sort of a think tanker, and it's, 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 it's not sort of like the ends and the sort of, it's more, I do think to achieve the emancipatory sort of outcomes that I think the UBI could potentially achieve will, I think, require the sort of raising of a sort of substantial sum of money, essentially, and, you know, upwards of, you know, 10% of GDP um, relative sort of to today in terms of tax take, let's say. And I think then the question is not so much, well, is UBI in a sort of abstract sense a good thing? Yes, I think, you know, in and of itself, a generous UBI, I think, does a lot of the things that left advocates do say, you know, a sort of parsimonious sort of, stingy UBI obviously is much more like this, you know, accompanied by the cutback of public services is clearly much more in the sort of Yang Silicon Valley thing. But a generous UBI with generous, um, you know, welfare services, etc. Yes, I think it gets a lot of the things you want. But I think the question for me in some ways is, that's in the abstract, the real world will potentially be, okay, we have to raise 10% of GDP in taxes over and above what we already have. That will, I think, the reality is that will be a political struggle. And that will be a lot of political energy in that. And then the question is, do we then want to take the, those re- collectively raised resources and disperse them in individualized market transfers in the form of UBI? Or do we want to use those extra resources to build collective public goods, whether that's universal childcare or universal sort of adult social care, whether that's universal you know, provision of universal decommodified transport networks, you know, public housing, decarbonized energy system, etc.? And in some ways, what I think would be more useful in the debate is not to sort of say, is UBI in the abstract a useful thing? And I think clearly it's, you know, a sort of le- a generous left UBI can do lots of really exciting things, you know, putting aside the Yang version. But I think it's a question of, of trade-offs of like, well, actually, do we want to build collective goods or individualized transfers? And we can just say, well, we'll do both. And in some ways, I kind of lean towards saying, well, why don't we do both? But I think um, we'd have to pay. But Andrew Yang certainly is not going to do this. No, yeah, yeah, that's true. Exactly. And I think, yeah, but again, it goes back to the question of power. Who is in, who has the power to impose this? And if it's being imposed by sort of, you know, a desiccated, sort of anti-democratic, democratic wing of you know, American politics, then I think we're in trouble. If it's being imposed because the sort of working class has collectively fought for and won 
the claim on the social surplus so that they can live outside of the market sort of to increasing levels of freedom, then obviously that's a very different position we're in. But I guess it's, I think it's the Alex Gurevich article, isn't it, where it's like, well, if we're in a position to win that, then the sort of the inequality in property relations and wider inequalities would almost certainly have been dismantled or significantly ameliorated to make you know the UBI, to make the UBI possible necessarily involves a different world in the first place. So I think it's a very useful device for thinking through political strategy. It's a useful device for thinking about what, what is the type of sort of decommodified public, generous, generous public realm we want. Um, how do we expand and deepen universal forms of freedom for everyone, uh, whether you know in wage or non-wage relations? And so I think there's a, sort of a lot of good that can come of it. But I think you know I think it it rightly has moved to the stage of debate where it's less about sort of is this abstractly good or bad into the particulars, the questions of designs, the political strategies, right. the sort of trade-offs. And I think in general, you know, it can be a a tool towards a more emancipated society of deep freedom for all but there is a lot under the hood there in terms of the design in terms of the politics in terms of how you win it what do you lose by choosing to win and fight for ubi relative to other sort of public goods maybe the biggest challenge for everything we've been talking about is how a left government taking power should approach the possibility of a capital strike firms withholding investment removing capital from the country in an attempt to force a left government into submission, as happened with Francois Mitterrand in France and and has happened in various – it's kind of a constant feature of capitalism that then emerges in more spectacularly at particular moments of, of challenge. And business lobbyists, um, I read in a Guardian article, have already warned that business would move off of UK stock exchanges to avoid being included in the inclusive ownership fund. How, in your view, does a left-governed country fight global capital, given that they're both global and have most of the capital? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a double dilemma that uh, we face there, as you pointed to at the end. I think, it, again, it goes partly back to this, you know, how do you challenge finance? And it's a similar strategy of sort of non-reformist reforms, but then also sort of ruptural strategies that that you can sort of play with. And I think partly by democratizing finance and embedding capital – in geographies, whether that's you know, cities, regions, nation states, sort of solidaristic national communities, you know, whatever it might be, I mean, national, sorry, international communities, I should say, not uh, international communities. If you can embed capital in that, you know, and democratically control it, that necessarily you know, whittles away at the power of you know capital strike or capital flight, which, as you you know rightly point to, the Mitterrand experience is you know a really sort of useful one to study in terms of learning from and learning what to do. And I'd give a shout out to um, a very good book by Christine Berry and uh, Joe Guinan, um, who's actually based over in the US uh, at the Democracy Collaborative called People Get Ready, which explores the Mitterrand moment, but also how the left can prepare for prepare for power. But I think um, so partly it's through sort of trying to embed capital through those non-reformist reforms. Partly it's through sort of jujitsu movements. So, okay, the sort of UK FTSE, uh, so the list, the public list exchange goes down in value because you're transferring value away from shareholders towards workers. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means value is being distributed in different ways, in less financialized ways. But then, okay, you could say, well, why doesn't the social wealth fund then sort of buy up some of these sort of shares so that you actually sort of can socialize capital at a quicker rate? And so you sort of accelerate as they decelerate um, and sort of, you know, so sort of you know, use their 
momentum away towards sort of inverting the sort of the, the structures. I think clearly, and it's you know it's not an area I'm sort of working on that much, but clearly sort of you know there is sort of some discussion around throwing grit in the wheel of capital mobility, whether that's sort of capital controls or whether that's you know sort of um, you know you could do that through some of those tools I used mentioned earlier around capital requirements, around um, collateral, but also sort of restrictions on mobility, et cetera, et cetera. And Grace Blakely's book has some sections on that, which might be of interest. And I think you obviously need sort of new forms of international solidarity, which is where this sort of transatlantic left, I think, that is sort of burgeoning is quite a useful relationship to develop and continue to explore. Although, of course, you know, the UK and the US lefts are the furthest behind in many ways in terms of fighting against extractive economics. And I think, you know, as much as the transatlantic left is a really exciting moment in terms of the UK and the US lefts of this fluidity of relationships and movement building and sort of ideas, I think obviously we need to be sort of necessarily sort of, you know, humble in recognising that we're, we're late to the party, so to speak. But I think clearly building up international solidaristics of networks, you know, whether that's international trade unions, whether that's sort of international left governments, and whatever that might be, international solidarity has to match the sort of international fluidity of of organized capital. And I think we also need to recognize, you know, on on this that, you know, capital is not a monolithic block and you will be able to detach certain forms of capital from the, you know, capital uh, with sort of organized capital C exactly, capital. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you can see let's say Sanders gets in and there's a sort of, you know, let's, let's just be an AOC is the Treasury Secretary and there's a sort of majority in sort of the sort of Senate and uh, House of Representatives and a sort of wave of federal, uh, sort of state level C, sorry, state governments go democratic sort of on a GND program. That would clearly involve a huge extension of public investment, public ownership, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that all capital would flee is a bit absurd. So you'd presumably see huge investment in retrofitting and the building out of renewables and the scaling up of electric vehicles, at, you know, buses, uh, but not cars, but et cetera, et cetera. And all these things, you can sort of see how you can have form potentially temporary, but nonetheless sort of real alliances between segments of capital and enter into a contest sort of both, you know, the broad sort of coalitions within capital, because it's not monolithic, but then enter into the sort of institutions, financial institutions themselves, and begin to rework those from the inside. So I think, A, forming ways of sort of embedding and democratizing capital, B, international solidarity and sort of new forms of international coordination, C, you know, a political reality that capital isn't monolithic block, and we can sort of detach, even if temporarily, certain sort of formations within capital, and D, the fact that, you know, there are the tools to respond to capital flight and capital strike that I think actually we shouldn't necessarily, you know, over-egg or be completely cowboy this while recognising as per, you know, sort of the retreat in France in the sort of 80s and sort of a whole variety of other examples we can point to. This is obviously not a, a completely sort of benign threat. And therefore, I think we need to think very seriously about not just what's the programme, what's the political coalitions and power building and movement building we need to get that program but then what do you do when you're actually in power and and how you know how how do you make sure you're not in office but also in power and it does doesn't just slip away from you and you're under immediate assault and you don't quite know what to do so i think thinking about that is really important there's often a lack of clarity perhaps for very good reason as to whether corbin and john mcdonald want to mend or end capitalism is this a necessarily constructive ambiguity? What do you make of it? 
I mean, I think it's probably necessarily uh, constructive ambiguity uh, given Labour's position. But I think, you know, they are socialists and therefore they are seeking to, in, as far as my reading goes, they're seeking to sort of dismantle both sort of hierarchies and forms of oppression that capitalism generates, but also they're seeking to sort of shift towards social power and the social organisation of the economy rather than sort of, you know, private narrow power organising the economy. And that, you know, doesn't mean there'll be no sort of profit-making organisations or private enterprise at all necessarily in a sort of McDonald economy, but it clearly means the sort of the orientation, the locus of power, the forms of association and power, you know, would be sort of weighted towards democratic association and would ultimately be like a radical shift both through a better form of capitalism, you know, because I think sort of the UK's political economy is sclerotic and it, you know, clearly a sort of Swedish model would be better than the UK's uh, political economy in form of capitalism and liberal market capitalism. But at the same time, I think, you know, that tension between is it just reforming or is it moving beyond? I think clearly my reading would be that it is seeking to build up and then move beyond some of the sort of core institutions, principles, dynamics of capitalism. But you know, clearly that's live debate. And I don't, you know, I've got no sort of particular insight on the sort of the exact direction, but my sense would be it's a sort of useful of constructive ambiguity and a necessary one because, you know, this will be, while of course the sort of climate breakdown demands urgency, nonetheless, you know, the institutional turn that can sort of prefigure and then expand out of the democratic economy in place of the extractive economy will be one we need to fight and win and, you know, can't happen overnight. Yeah, and each kind of moment of transition and progression has to be fought out at particular conjunctures. And I think there's a refreshing amount of or refreshing lack of of dogmatism in both the U.S. and U.K. left right here, where it's very clear what where there's a lot of consensus around fighting for and implementing non-reformist reforms, reforms that fundamentally both make people's lives better in the here and now, but also facilitate deepening a deepening and radicalization of the reform process without having to have precisely what the end result, especially some sort of end of history, utopic result, without figuring out precisely what that looks like in advance. I mean, exactly. I think, you know, the whole, you know, we shouldn't be cookbooks of, of some sort of utopian future sort of argument, I think, holds a lot of weight um, here. And I think, you know, in this, you know, Greta Thunberg's line about cathedral thinking, you can build the institutional configuration that generates a very different alternative to, you know, capitalist institutions and, and sort of, you know, the type of political economy we have today that also delivers in the here and now for ordinary people, um, which isn't necessarily some sort of, you know, here is a clear plan so that by 2030, this will be the ratio of this, this and this and this, this and this. I think the democratic economy is about transforming and reconfiguring voice, power and control. But I think it necessarily involves the flourishing and the sort of institutional imagination that means we can't say, well, this is the only path and we know exactly where we're going. It's about remaking. Because the whole point is that we're going to have to democratically decide that. And as we deepen deepen our democratic power, we're even better positioned to democratically direct the future as we move exactly. forward. You know, democracy is not about sort of you know, setting in stone, but rather opening up the sort of tablet to inscribe a different future onto. And that sort of inscription will be sort of messy and contested. My last question, and, and you just referred to this, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot, including preparing for this interview, is the politics of the so-called special relationship between the UK and the US. It's a relationship that is, of course, that was founded in a deep settler colonial bond, 
and that then became the Anglo-American Imperial Partnership. But the flip side of this is that because of this shared language and history, that the left in each country is paying a lot of transatlantic attention to the left insurgents in the other country. Just just generally, there's this huge amount of of cooperation and dialogue between the U.S. and British left. You all at Commonwealth work very closely with the U.S.-based democracy collaborative. There's obviously a lot of media being read in both direction, a lot of policy sharing, in in part because both countries are are undergoing this very similar left rejuvenation thanks to very similar reasons, this diverse generation of, of more militant youth radicalized because of the intergenerational class politics of the financial crisis and climate change. And and you see it at the top with Sanders picking up Labor's Inclusive Ownership Fund and Labor picking up the Green New Deal. This is a, a big question, but to end, what's your take on the significance of the transatlantic left for both the UK and US left? And even more broadly, how might it change the world order with the left governing these two countries that have for so long been at the center of imperial power? So I think it's fundamentally necessary relationship to take seriously in that the US and then you know the UK as a sort of junior partner has been, as you say, a key nodal point throughout you know, centuries now of colonial violence, of plunder, of dispossession, financialization of imperial overstretch and aggression. And, you know, those same sort of linearities flow through to their sort of their dual role in sort of global international political economy today. And so the left, if it's sort of serious about the sort of types of transformation it's seeking, has to transform both our own two countries, but also, you know, how our conjoined and obviously uh, you know, the UK very much junior, but the, the conjoining of the sort of projection of the type of institutions, values, political and sort of economic formations that, you know, the two as a nodal point of extractive economics and sort of neocolonial economics does so. So firstly, it's fundamentally necessary. Second, it has to be reparative and regenerative and sort of in the service of addressing the deep harms, you know, both accumulated but also ongoing and the inequalities and the violences that the sort of special relationship has has generated across continents, communities, time and space. Um, thirdly, though, anything more positively is that I can't speak for the American left, um, but sort of certainly, you know, from sort of the UK left and the people working here, I think draw huge inspiration from um, the ideas, the movements, the people, you know, from Sunrise Movement, to, you know, Ilhan Omar and AOC, through to the, sort of the ideas, as you say, the Green New Deal, through to the the writing of, you know, sort of Jed Purdy and, you know, sort of following the sort of, you know, this PMC debate that uh, has been sort of flying around, um, you know, all these <laughs> other things, you know, not had much time to sort of keep up with it, unfortunately, because we've got this small issue of um, Brexit and various other things going around. But, you know, sort of keeping, you know, keeping sort of your toe in the water there is just this like hugely sort of useful resource, but also sort of, you know, a form of solidarity between, you know, sort of movements that are sort of up against it, but nonetheless, you know, a a resource of hope in the sort of um, Raymond Williams sense. And, you know, Commonwealth certainly, you know, was just a huge pleasure and learned a huge amount and drew a huge amount from the thinking of some of the contributors um, based in the US for our roadmap for a Green New Deal series, particularly on this question of what does a green internationalism look like that can dismantle some of those, those exact hierarchies that sort of the special relationship currently 
props up, but actually we could be at the heart of sort of undoing and reimagining. And I think one example, um, you know, we sort of mentioned the sort of uh, twos and something off offline. I think it was earlier, but obviously, sort of, I think one of the most interesting things about um, Adam's book is exactly this point that sort of the Fed, but also the sort of Bank of England and a series of other central banks, undertook this extraordinary sort of plastic reimagining of the financial tools we use to sort of plan and control the global economy in terms of not just quantitative easing at a huge scale, but also the extension of swap lines between the Fed and the Bank of England, etc, etc. And I think what that then opens up is the plasticity and the political ordering of the planned economies we have in some real sense. And therefore, how can we democratise and repurpose you know, this vast infrastructural power of you know, the US in particular, but also the UK, in ways that are democratic, reparative, you know, attendant to the injustices it's created in the past, but alive to the potential for emancipatory outcomes going forwards, if we can get the type of coalitions, the type of international solidarities, the, the type of movement and lesson learning flowing not just between ourselves, but between you know, whole communities across the world, of struggling to move beyond an extractive economy and build the democratic economy. And I think in that sense, we opened with a sort of Debsian moment of if you can look at you know, your neighbour and whether they're sort of a frightened immigrant or sort of someone on a sort of low wage or someone who's looking for adult social care or someone facing a sort of burning planet and find solidarity and hope and constructive... And fight for a stranger as hard as you would fight for yourself. Exactly. And I think if we can do that, not just in our own sort of... You know, bounded national communities, but you know, sort of a terrestrial politics that encompasses the earth and all human and non-human life on it. Then I think we we've got a chance against sort of the sort of driving force of extractivism. Um, so I think you know, despite the challenge, I think there's huge you know resources for hope and optimism, and I think certainly the sort of a repurposed and necessarily more humble, but I think a more democratic and generative special relationship not focused on imperial violence, but actually on attending to the harms that we've created, but also recognising the power we have to sort of potentially be more generative. I think that could be a sort of useful step forwards. Right. I was just interviewed Achin Vinayak about the situation in India, and he surprised me when he said that the only hope in the short term for Indian politics, for, for the BJP's hold on power being somehow broken, is the left coming to power in the US and or the, the UK, not because the because we should have some sort of savior complex, but because given that we do live in a world system, a world system that was created by the transatlantic slave trade and colonialism that the U.S. and Britain have been at the core of for such since its inception, essentially, that taking our nation's boots off the neck of the rest of the world and doing something rather different and solidarious with our with our with our power, it's almost hard to envision how big that change could be because we've never seen it before. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, you know, another world is possible. And that that would be one manifestation of it that I think would be not in a savior complex, but in a sort of structural world systems sense, fundamentally opening up of a new sort of set of trajectories and possibilities for you know people who have been, as you say, on the receiving end of you know, forms of violence and domination and extraction for a very long time. Well, Matt Lawrence, thanks so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Matthew Lawrence is founder and director of Commonwealth, a UK-based think tank that designs ownership models for the democratic economy. 
He is co-author of a forthcoming book for Verso on strategies for systems change. Thank you for listening to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that communism is the positive expression of annulled private property, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky, whose home studio in Los Angeles I'm currently sitting in. Our communications coordinator is Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling other people that you know in real life or online about the show and why you like it. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Mm-hmm.